Good afternoon. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Diana Hope, and it's my great privilege to be welcoming back to the book festival Sebastian Barry with his marvellous book, The Secret Scripture. Sebastian Barry was born in Dublin and now lives in Wicklow. He's an acclaimed and multi-award winning playwright, poet and novelist. His plays include The Stuart of Christendom, The Pride of Parnell Street and Dallas Sweetman, which was a commission by Canterbury Cathedral and Payne's Ploughs, which was, um, I don't know if anyone here was lucky enough to see that last September. We might have time to talk about that later. His novel, A Long, Long Way, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Award and the Dublin International Impact Award and was indeed the Dublin City 2007 book, uh, One City, One Book Choice. The Secret Scripture was also shortlisted for the Booker and, of course, was a wonderful and worthy winner of the 2008 um, Costa Novel Award. Um, so please give a very warm welcome to Sebastian Barry. Um, I, I was just in Edinburgh last, last Friday um, and had to go back to that other slightly separate world called Ireland and then come back. But while I was here, and I'd hardly forget that they wonderfully here gave me the James Tate Black Memorial Award, and I'm obviously going to remember that for the rest of my life. But the other thing I'll never forget is Ian Rankin, because the power failed, holding a little torch over my shoulder as I read the first little bit I'm going to read here. So I'm sort of missing Ian a little bit. <laughs> I thought he might come down just to... Um, uh, indeed, I was here last year reading from this book and possibly, uh, catastrophically for some of you, the same uh, pieces. But um, it's, been, it's been quite an adventure and uh, not only for me and, you know, for... Um, my family and my little fellow of 12 and all the rest of it, but also in a certain way for the character of Roseanne, who uh, has a sort of source in what we mysteriously call real life, in that I did have a great aunt who was sectioned, put away in the 30s and 40s for moral reasons, and disappeared in that guise, never to be heard of again. And, um, and I suppose she did sit somewhere for 60 years, um, possibly in some distress, possibly in some peace of mind. I don't know. How would we know? Um, and I, and I, don't, I didn't even know her name, so I called her Roseanne. But I, I've had such wonderful letters from people about uh, how they feel that she's now one of her closest friends. And I thought that was very magical for a person who obviously had no friends at all till this point. So maybe we can do something with books beyond what uh, Robert Lowell's wife called the literary world. She said, all that fiddle, she called it. But there is something beyond all that, and maybe this is something to do with that. Anyway, this is her as a little girl. She's about 10, and her father is the superintendent in the, the Catholic graveyard. He himself is a Presbyterian man, as she is herself. And it's just a little story she tells about what he, it's something he showed her one day. Uh, I actually wrote it, 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 the book used to be called Hammers and Feathers, and in some worry, I just wrote this piece to explain the title. And even though it's no longer the title, the story's still here. 
That's the only reason I wrote it. Anyway, that's a strange world, isn't it? Um, right. So she's writing this herself and hiding it under the floorboards, an account of her life, and before she herself, as she imagines, simply departs it quietly and unseen. And she doesn't require readers, which is another mystery of Roseanne. She simply wants to narrate her life. When I was 10 or so, my father, in a fit of educating enthusiasm, brought me to the top of the long, thin tower in the graveyard. It was one of those beautiful, lofty, slim buildings made by monks in a time of danger and destruction. It stood in a nettle corner of the graveyard, and it was not much remarked on when you had grown up in Sligo, it was just there. But no doubt it was a treasure beyond compare, put up with only a murmur of mortar between the stones, each one remembering the curve of the tower, each one set in with perfect success by ancient masons. Of course, it was a Catholic yard. My father had not got that job because of his religion but because he was deeply liked in the town by all and sundry, and the Catholics did not mind their graves being dug by a Presbyterian, if it was a likable one. Because in those days there was often much greater ease between the churches than we give credit for, and it is often forgotten that under the old penal laws, in vanished days, the dissenting churches were just as harried, as he often liked to point out. At any rate, there is seldom a difficulty with religion where there is friendship. And it was only later that this distinction in him made any difference. At any rate, I know, he was exceedingly liked by the parish priest, a little perky, darting man called Father Gaunt, who loomed so large later in my own story, if a small man can be said to loom large. Those were the days just after the First War, and maybe in those ditches of history, as it were, minds turned to strangenesses quirks of education, such as he was bent on that day with me. Otherwise, I cannot explain why a grown man would take his child to the top of an old tower with a bag of hammers and feathers. All of Sligo, river, churches, houses radiated out from the foot of the tower, or so it seemed from the little window at the top. A passing bird might have seen two excited faces trying to peer out at the same time, myself heaping my weight onto my toes and bumping the underside of his chin. Roseanne, dearest, I shaved already this morning, and you won't shave me anyhow with the top of your golden head. For it was true I had soft hair like gold, like the gold of those selfsame monks, yellow as the gleams in old books. Pop, I said, for the love of all things, drop the hammers and feathers and let's see what's what. Oh, he said, I am weary from the climb. Let's just scope our eyes over Sligo before we attempt our experiment. He had waited and chosen a windless day for his work. He wished to prove to me the ancient premise that all things fall at the same rate in the realm of theory. All things fall at the same rate, he had said, in the realm of theory, and I will prove it to you. I will prove it to myself. We had been sitting by the spitting anthracite of our fire. All may fall at the same rate as you say, my mother piped up from her corner, but it's the rare thing rises. I do not think this was a cut at him, but just an observation. At any rate, he looked over at her with the perfect neutrality she herself was mistress of and had taught him. It is strange to me writing this here in this darkened room, scratching it all out in blue biro ink, somehow to see them in my mind's eye or somewhere behind my eyes in the darkened bowl of my head still there alive and talking, truly, as if their time was real time and mine was an illusion, and it touches my heart for the thousandth time how beautiful she is, how neat 
agreeable and shining with her Southampton accent, like the pebbles on the beach there disturbed by the waves, rushing, shushing, the soft sound that sounds in my dreams. It's also true that when I was bold, when she worried that my path was veering from the path she wanted for me, even in small matters, she was wont to whip me. But in those times, children were routinely hit. So now our two faces were jostling for position, framed by the ancient frame of the monk's little look-see window. What vanished faces had peered out there, sweating in their robes, trying to see where the Vikings were who would come to kill them and take their books, their vessels and their coins. No mason likes to leave a large window for Vikings, and that window spoke still of old nervousness and peril. At length it was clear that his experiment was impossible with both of us there. One or other of us would miss the outcome, so he sent me back down on my own by the dank stairway of stones, and I can still feel that wet wall under my hand and the strange fright that grew in me to be separated from him, my little breast beating as if there was an uncomfortable pigeon trapped there. I came out from the tower and stood away from the base as he had bid me for fear of the hammers falling and killing me dead. The tower looked enormous from there. It seemed to stretch up to the filthy grey clouds of that day, to heaven. Not a breeze stirred. The neglected graves of that section of the yard, the graves of men and women of some century, where the people could only afford rough stones and not a name writ upon them, seemed different now on my own, as if their poor skeletons might rise up against me to devour me in their eternal hunger. Standing on the ground, I was a child on a precipice. That was the feeling like, like that scene in the old play King Lear where the king's friend imagines he's falling down a beetling cliff where there is no cliff. So that when you read, you also think there is a cliff and fall with the king's friend. But I peered up faithfully, faithfully, lovingly, lovingly. It is no crime to love your father. It is no crime to feel no criticism of him. And especially so when I knew him into my early womanhood, or nearly when a child tends to grow disappointed in her parents. It is no crime to feel your heart beating up to him, or as much of him as I could see. His arm now stuck out the little window, and the bag held suspended in the Irish air. Now he was calling to me, and I could barely catch his words. But after a few repeats, I think I heard him say, Are you stood back, dearest? I am stood back, Papa! I called, I nearly screamed. Such a distance the words had to rise and such a small window to enter to reach his ears. Then I will let loose the bag. Watch, watch, he called. Yes, Papa, I am watching. He loosened the top of the bag as best he could with the fingers of one hand and shook the contents free. I had seen him place them there. It was a handful of, fe of feathers from the feather bolster on their bed plucked out against the screeches of his wife and two mason's hammers he kept for when he repaired the little walls and headstones of graves. I stared and stared. Maybe I heard a curious music. The chattering of the jackdaws and the old scratchy talking of the rooks and the great beech trees there mingled like a music in my head. My neck was straining and I was bursting to see the outcome of that elegant experiment, an outcome my father had said might stand to me in my life as the basis of a proper philosophy. Although there was not a breath of wind, the feathers immediately drifted away, dispersing like a little explosion, even rising greyly against the grey clouds, almost impossible to see. The feathers drifted, 
drifted away. My father was calling, calling, in enormous excitement in the tower. What do you see? What do you see? What did I see? What did I know? It is sometimes, I think, the strain of ridiculousness in a person, a ridiculousness born maybe of desperation, such as also Aeneas McNulty, you do not know who that is yet, exhibited so many years later that pierces you through with love for that person. It is all love, that not knowing, that not seeing. I am standing there, eternally straining to see, a crick in the back of my neck, peering and straining, if for no other reason than for love of him. The feathers are drifting away, drifting, swirling away. My father is calling and calling. My heart is beating back to him. The hammers are falling still. And then, a thousand million years later, when she's about... 17 or so. At this point, her father's dead. In curious circumstances. And she's working in the Cafe Cairo. If anyone's ever been to Sligo, you still see the faint lettering on the wall somewhere, the Cafe Cairo, which was the center of the earth. And she has a job there. And she's, she's young. And All the things that are good for you when you're young, she owns them, she has them. And she's describing the first time she met her husband, Tom McNulty, who was the band leader in the, at Strand Hill, seaside place in Sligo. And it has its curiosities about it as well, because I, I, I'll just read it. Curious to relate, it was not in the Café Cairo that I met Tom, but in quite another place. It was the sea itself. It is along the strands of the world that the privilege of possessing children is most blatantly seen. What torment for the spinster and the childless man to see the various sizes of little demons and angels ranged along the tide line, like some species of migratory animal. The human animal began as a mere wriggling thing in the ancient seas, struggling out onto land with many regrets. That is what brings us so full of longing to the sea. I am not an entirely childless person. That story also belongs to the sea, or the strand anyway. My child, my child went to Nazareth. That's what they told me. Well, that's what I heard them say, but I was not hearing anything very well, very properly in that time. They might as well have said Wyoming. Strand Hill's beach is narrow, heaped, endangered, and the hill of sand itself seems to have drawn up its enormous knees to escape the goings-on below. There is a long, rough promenade where gigs, carts, sidecars, high traps, and motor cars used to be parked, the occupants spilling out, I'm sure, always with the same level of human anticipation. The kids barreling away ahead, the fathers laughing, cursing, the mothers admonishing, panicking, all the to-do and turmoil of normal happiness. Knee-length bathing suits vying in eternity with those wondrous bikinis I've only seen in stray magazines. How I would like to have sported one of them. And at first, no doubt, just a few brave houses built on the marsh and acres of blown sand, scotch grass, the land rising and rising until eventually touching on the realm of Knocknarae, 
where Queen Maeve sleeps in her stony grave. From the top of Knocknaray you can see the beach at Strandhill, but the people are only pins, and anything the size of a child is just a dust mote in your eye. I have looked down from there, despairing and weeping. All that country was my country later. Strandhill, Strandhill, the mad woman of Strandhill. At first, a few houses risked on that uncertain ground, then the old hotel, and then huts and more houses, and then sometime in the vanished twenties, Tom McNulty built the Plaza Ballroom, a glorified corrugated iron warehouse with a round roof, a square concrete front of the hall, with an oddly modest door and a ticket window, the brightness of both beckoning, promising, oh, and a tumultuous whirlwind of dreams, rising from the approaching crowd every Friday night night, reaching, no doubt, as far as heaven to comfort God in the doubts of his creation. That was Tom McNulty's work, father and son, to put a ticket on those dreams. And I felt that dream in me with passionate completeness. To sit here, writing this, my hands as old as Methuselah's. Look at these hands. No, no, you cannot, but the skin is thin as did you ever see the shell of a razorfish? They are strewn all about Ross's strand. Well, there is a filament of transparent stuff that covers those shells, like a drying varnish. It is strange stuff. That is my skin now. I fancy I can count my bones. The truth is my hands look like they've been buried a while and then dug up. They would give you a fright. I have not looked in a mirror for about 15 years. The first few feet of water at Strand Hill were safe enough. In summer they were like a bath. The sea there made only the slightest effort at going in and out, it always seemed to me. Maybe the children peeing the water had something to do with it, with the heat, I mean. It was lovely, though, myself and Chrissy and the other girls from the Café Cairo. Mrs. Prunty always tried to employ good girls for the café, but good girls that looked good, which is a different thing. I think we looked like young goddesses. Mary Thompson could have been a picture in a magazine. Winnie Jackson was a picture once in the Sligo Champion. Miss Winnie Jackson enjoys the fine weather at Strand Hill. Her in her beautiful one-piece bathing suit sent down to her in a box from Arnott's in Dublin on the Dublin to Sligo train. There was style for you. She had a lovely plump bust and I think the lads felt only despair looking at her that they would never even get talking to her. Our skins going all African in the steaming heat of August. Our faces bright red sometimes in the evenings. Going home across the strand, burnt off of us, and lying in bed then in the town, hardly daring to let our shoulders touch the sheets. Happy, and then the skin calmed down the next morning, and longing to get away out to the beach again, and then again, and then again. Happy, just straightforward, ordinary girls we were. We liked to bring as much despair as we could to the lads, who watched on the sidelines of our happiness like sharks, devouring our attributes with our eyes. Sometimes I'd get talking to a lad at the dance. Lads didn't say much, and when they did talk, they didn't say much worth hearing. But that was all right. There were all sorts of the dance toffs from the town, and lads with trousers too short for them showing their socks, or bare legs stuck into battered shoes. There were always a few donkeys tied up outside, and nags of one sort and another, and carts heeled up. The mountain spilled out its sons and daughters like a queer avalanche. Lovely humanity. Father Gaunt was always there or some such, one or other of the curates, the herons among the minnows. By God, there was some sort of dance hall act, I seem to remember. Or maybe I imagine that. I believe they railed against dances in the church, but I wouldn't have been privy to that. There wasn't supposed to be much touching. 
'Twould be queer cold dancing without touching. Twas lovely to snuggle up to a lad at the end of a dance. You sweaty and him all sweaty too. In the summer, the smell of soap and turf often. And that stuff in their hair that time, Brilliantine was the name, I think. To be fellas there, whose fathers and mothers probably spoke Irish in the back hills of Sligo, and who from going to pictures now and then had the idea they had obligations to look like stars of the silver screen. Unless it was looking like Irish patriots they're trying to be. Maybe that was it too. Michael Collins had been a strong man for the grease in his hair. Even de Valera was well slicked down. And Tom McNulty's band blowing up a storm. Young Tom standing there at the edge of the stage with his trumpet or, or clarinet raised, blasting out the sort of music we had then. You had to have the jazz for the dancing. But also the foxtrot was still danced there. And even the waltz. Tom even had a recording made called Tom McNulty's Ragtime Band. By Jesus, that sent the hall into a frenzy. There was a light shining out of Tom then. Of course, at that time, Tom was just the great man I had never spoken to, unless it was in the cafe to say, what would you like? To which the answer would most likely be, China tea and a dead fly bun. Earl Grey for the brother. He was dead keen on the dead fly buns. I wonder if they still have them. They were like religious objects at that time. You couldn't have a cafe without them. What would be the point? It is funny how everything, how fixed everything was in those times. Dead fly buns, cream cakes, eclairs, cherry buns with white icing on top. It was like those things were as ancient and established as whales, dolphins, mackerel, like natural occurrences, the natural history of the cafe. It mattered altogether that my father was gone, but somehow I was able to tuck that in under the pillow of my hair, to sleep on it as it were. I couldn't help the happiness. When I woke in the morning, yes, there was my mother to see to, but I was able to feed her and look after her. She never said anything or went anywhere, just kept to the house in her stripy house coat. And there was that energy in me, like a motor car being started with a starting handle, cranking me up. I was cranked up mysteriously every morning I woke. I was aflame with energy. It swept me out of the house and through the streets of Sligo and in through the glass doors of the Cafe Cairo and had me kissing my friend Chrissy good morning and laughing. And if Mrs. Prunty was around, she would give me her shy smile and I would be jubilant, jubilant. It is always worth itemizing happiness. There is so much of the other thing in a life you had better put down the markers for happiness while you can. When I was in that state, everything looked beautiful to me. The rain slicing down looked like silver to me. Everything was of interest to me. Everyone seemed at ease with me. Even those slit-eyed corner boys of Sligos with the yellow fingers from the coffin nails they smoked, the yellow stain above their lips where the fag was stuck in, permanent accents like bottles being smashed in the back lane. There now. And all that comes back unbidden. I sat down today to write of Tom and the sea, rescuing me in the sea of happiness. I plunged in. I think I knew where I was going. It is curious to me how I remember so completely the feel of that light wool bathing suit on my skin. It had three thick stripes alternating, and I had saved the whole winter for it. You couldn't have found a nicer one in Sligo. A hot Irish day is such a miracle we become mad foreigners in the twinkle. The rain drives everyone indoors and history with it. There is a lovely lack of anything on a hot day. And because our world and its inner truth is so wet, the surprised greens of the fields and hills seem to burn with a sort of bewilderment, a wonderment, 
The land looks lovely to itself, and the girls and boys along the strand are painted into the tawny yellows and the blues and greens of the sea, also burning, burning, so it seemed to me. The whole town seemed to be there, everything suffering the same brushstrokes of the heat, everything joining and melding. I don't know if the plaza existed just at that time. I must have done because I had seen Tom McNulty playing, but if he did, it would have been 1929 or after even so. I wasn't exactly a girl, but I am confused about this. It is hard to know a person's age in a bathing suit in the riot of the sunlight, and I can't see what age I was. I'm peering back in my mind's eye, and all I see is fabulous glitter. Ah, and the undersea, just as glittering, speckled, chained in miracles somehow. That wonderful half-blindness the eyes have underwater, blurred because the sea itself is a huge lens, like you, you are wearing the sea itself before your face. So it's gone even more like a painting, a furious, mad painting. There was a whole book of them in the town hall library. The fellas that painted in France and were laughed at to begin with, like they didn't know how to paint. I won't risk writing one of the names, but I do remember them. Hard, harsh names and troubled lives to match. I can say them in my head as I write, but I'd be ashamed to spell them wrong myself in that undersea, my whole body loosened, but also sharpened, my lungs rich with air at first and then beggared, and the head lighter, lovelier, and the chiller water deeper, washing my face, asking my face who it was, what shape it was, in infinite detail. Suddenly I am lying to tell Dr. Green about this, I don't know why. I imagine he would be interested in it, it would please him, but I would also fear he would read something into it. He interprets things which is dangerous extremely. Oh yes, the beach of Strand Hill, high tide as it was, is good for a little. Then it plunges down, you are suddenly in the big water of the bay there. The big muscle, enormous like the famous Hudson River. No, not as big as that of course. But I felt I was not so much entering as flexing, touching something vast, flexing there under God's eye. And could I feel it pull me out swiftly, deeper? I don't know. I do know I gave my heart to it. I do know I was moved by it. Maybe I wept. Can you weep underwater? It must be possible. How long was I swimming without coming up? A minute? Two? Three? Like a pearl diver in the South Seas, wherever they are, whatever they are. Myself and my bathing suit. And inside the suit, a little pocket with two bob in it. That would be my fare back to Sligo in the old green bus for safety's sake, stuck in the pocket like something you would keep a scapular in if you were a Catholic. And I suppose my youth, my softness, my hardness, my blue eyes, my yellow hair sleeking underwater, and maybe 300 sharks out there beginning to be in the neighborhood of sharks. Wonderful, wonderful. I didn't care. Become a sort of shark. The great pull of the current beginning to take me like a word lost in a swell of music. Then, in all that Happiness, suddenly enveloped, stolen back, taken up by human arms I knew, expert, almost devious. And this person, sleek and round and strong, raised me up through the wild glitter and we broke the surface and there was the roaring world again and the heaving sea and the sky whether up or down I didn't know. And the swimmer drew me back to the strand with the boys and the girls the buckets, the old cannon pointing out to sea, the houses, the plaza, the stunned donkeys, the few motor cars, Sligo, Strand Hill, my fate, my fate as woeful as my father's, my ridiculous, heartless, funny fate.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Just a wonderful reading, but uh, just shows you the kind of extraordinary vitality of this book and the beautiful language. Um, that, that, of course, was Roseanne speaking. Yes. Um, she's writing, as you said, her testimony and hiding it under the floorboards. Um, you mentioned your great aunt, and I read in an interview that one of your, her descendants had been in touch with you from New York and was going to send you a piece of paper folded with her name, which seemed... Yes. Entirely opposite, given how, given how many pieces of folded paper are written upon in this yes. in this book. He he was the, I mean, he was one of the people I feared for the book. The way you do when you write a book, or any of the books I've been doing for thirty one years or plays that, uh, without intending to, because you're, you're, no matter if you're talking about, uh, you know, a family's great sins or great otherwise, you're always concerned that inadvertently you will hurt somebody. And this is one person I thought I might be upsetting with the book. He was the son. Uh, Tom McNulty in the book is a sort of version of my great uncle. And he, when Roseanne, or this woman, was removed from view, the marriage was annulled, and, and he married again. And th this man, Porrick in New York, is the son of that marriage. Right. And when his father, Julie, died, um, he and his sister, I think, or his sisters, was very astonished and actually very upset to discover that their father had been married before. And they had had no idea. But of course, in the annulment of a marriage, it isn't like a divorce, as you know. Uh, it is, it's as if your marriage never existed, which I think is one of the things that hurts Roseanne the most. So I didn't know what he'd make of this at all. And, um, and I can't remember if he rang me now or emailed. This is the brain's narrative grasp does these <laughs> things. Um, and he said that this was a story that had waited a long time to be told, which is curious since in all aspects it's entirely made up because I don't know what happened to her. And he said that somewhere in his sister's house, or one of his sister's houses in the west of Ireland, and somehow being in the west of Ireland was part of it, he said there was a piece of paper with this person's real name written. And he knew it was somewhere, in a drawer somewhere. And, and he also felt that maybe his sisters mightn't want to go looking for it. So he said he would come over in the summer and, and root around in his sister's house and try and find it for me. So far from being annoyed and offended, he was something else entirely that I possibly don't even have a name for. Well, I mean, the summer has gone by, if we can call it a summer. And uh, he, he hasn't found the name, but, or if he has, he hasn't sent it yet. But curiously enough, I did get a letter just a few days ago from, from a lady who said she'd read the book and she knew in her family tree there was a certain woman from Longford who had been married briefly to a Pat O'Hara, which is the person's real name, in Sligo, and had died of TB quite soon after their marriage. And did I know anything? Was that the same? family and did I know anything about it? And that, that hit me in, in a couple of ways. First of all, if you tidy somebody away into an asylum, and if you then say that they've died of TB, which was the other common cause of death, then you, you don't need to talk about them anymore, because they're simply not only put away, but have been killed in a kind of 
fake narrative, which obviously has a, a, a relevance to the book. And, uh, and she said, um, well, I actually, let me see if I have the letter. I wonder, is this the letter? Quite sure. Yes. And because there are, you know, the, because there's a couple of these instances in the book, I wondered for a moment if this was another writer. But I wondered if it was actually Colin Tobin <laughs> who was sending me this um, as part of a further addendum to the book itself. Um, Colin and I were born in the same year. We're virtually the same person. We have to remind ourselves that we're separate. <laughs> so he, he thinks I, he's written my books, and I'm certain I wrote his books. <laughs> I certainly get his royalties regularly. <laughs> I wish. Um, yes. She said, an aunt of mine, I hope this isn't a confidential letter, but it's only between ourselves, um, was married briefly to Pat O'Hara, musician and band leader from Sligo. She appears to have died young from TB but I have no records. This book's all about records. Could this be the same Pat O'Hara? And, 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 and he, she names the woman. The, there name, many the name is written there. Who suffered this fate. Yeah. And one of the concerns of your fiction does appear to be, you know, giving name to people, to those people who are on the wrong side of history. You know, Willie Dunn and Thomas Dunn. In a, in a long, long way, and in the Stuart of Christendom, you sort of yeah. rescue them. Yeah, Richard give Murphy. Give them a voice. Richard Murphy, a very wonderful Irish poet. Now, I say he must be in his early 80s now, Richard, but uh, he's a beautiful poem uh, to his great, I think it was great grandmother. Or, uh, and it, the, one of the lines is, may I, rescue her, may I rescue her from the cold hand where now she lies? very wonderful and then he writes an elegy for this woman uh, and that's really what what I've been up to because it is a cold hand where they lie and um, every every life is worth itemizing I mean that's plain and blatant and as as Roseanne says indeed at the beginning of the book she said if no anecdotes survive I mean unless you, you we have all done something a bit quirky in our lives um, Nothing is remembered of you because the, obviously your afterlife is in your family's memory. And if you haven't done something daft, like fallen off Kilimanjaro or something like that, then then no one will remember you, and you you pass away entirely. And it is that well, and that's proper and right that we're all rowing down the great river. Some of us are in the central current, and some of us have traipsed into the side, and some of us are having a sleep in a tent. And then the waterfall is always there, and the steam of the waterfall always appears eventually, and over we go, and that's. That's the end of the story. And we are such a curious animal, and yet we have this curious thing called writing, or the technique of writing, to possibly gather some of these things back in. And yet, of course, it's completely disreputable because it's made up. Well, that's the other thing in the book, is the unreliability of what is written down. But she's not the only person who's writing. There's, there's Dr. Green as well, and he's, you know, has a fascinating relationship with yes. her, and he's writing down his own. Oh. Um, words about her and, and, and you've no idea the trouble that caused me really I mean we all have these rational editorial minds do you know where we like everything to fit together and everything to be correct I mean it is like a, the nightmare proofing of a book when you have three competing narratives 
And e each one has to be sort of true to the person writing it, in essence, or so I decided. But they're cancelling each other out and they're threatening each other. Uh, and you could go mad of an evening in an old rectory in Wicklow trying to make sure. And it's, it's, not, only, it's not only Roseanne and Dr. Green, her psychiatrist, is writing a sort of commonplace book, who has no intention of writing. He's not actually writing. He's actually just jotting things down. She is engaged in a narrative, but he is not engaged in that at all. He is simply writing things down for himself. It's not supposed to be a narrative. It sort of becomes a narrative, which was strange. And then there's Father Gaunt's account, which we never see the original of, and that Dr. Green finds that he, on one occasion, entirely misinterprets or adds some detail in that couldn't be there. Oh, that's Dr. Green now. It's going to be. Very sad. I never answer the phone anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're notorious for that. Uh, but the other person writing is, uh, uh, which I kept forgetting, was, was myself. Um, because I, you know, I, I felt I was looking over her shoulder, and Dr. Green was in another room in the asylum, so I was sort of sneaking in there to see what he was doing. And I could have a sort of feeling of what Dr. Uh, Father Gaunt might have put together. But, but there was this other person writing. And, if I was being true to Roseanne's apprehension of the truth, and if I was being true to Dr. Green's confusion, the further responsibility was then, and, and Father Gaunt's exactitude. See, exactitude is a very dangerous thing, really, when you think about it. Somebody who has the goods on you, you know, when you're being sentenced, it's the exactitude of the thing that's so worrying. And that's what all the lawyers come in to do, is to establish the, exact, the actual events then I realized I also had a responsibility to in some way reflect my own confusion, you know, as a writer. Otherwise, I wasn't playing fair with them, was I? So I had to slightly destabilize dates, which, believe me, it feels like such a crime uh, against your own book, but just slightly, because to, to, to build in a sort of decrep the writer's, the fourth writer's decrepitude. Um, I'm just going to write the most straightforward narrative next time. I'll never do this again. It's an absolute nightmare. Can we come back to Father Gaunt because he does loom large, as, as uh, yes. suggested in, in the first reading. And in fact, yes. his writing um, is, is a betrayal. It's uh, described by Dr. Green as being a small holocaust. It's a forest fire that burns away all trace of Roseanne. See. I mean, he is a, a very malign He is malign, He's but a force in the book. That well, let's not say malign. I mean, I am, in essence, that wonderful thing, a tutuist, as in Bishop Tutu, <laughs> who said uh, in my hearing once in Emory University in Atlanta, he said, there's nothing a man can do that I could not do in other circumstances. Actually, he was saying it with Wale Seyinka. And Wale was saying, oh, Desmond, you don't mean that. That's, how could, you know, because he was saying the darkest crime, this was the whole focus and force of truth uh, and reconciliation. So I don't think, I don't think Father Gaunt, I was always waiting, I was nearly praying as an agnostic person, praying for Father Gaunt to do something to redeem himself, but he just wouldn't do it. And he, you see, I think the most sinister thing about Father Gaunt is that he actually believes what he's saying and he's talking in moral terms, which should be a good thing and there is a way of talking to your kids in moral terms that's not about Father Gorn. And he is saying that, well, he says in effect that she killed her child. And, and this was the great responsibility of the book then to sort of fight Dr. Gorn. What he does is he intervenes in her narrative 
and he twists it around so that she can have her, that she can be accused of being um, an infomaniac at least, and anyway, the marriage can be annulled on those grounds. And there were all these other little safety things he was putting into it. So he interferes in her narrative, and I always felt it was my responsibility to interfere in the narrative for myself to cancel out his interference. So, and people thought that he must be a portrait of Archbishop McQuaid. I don't know if any of you, in reading the book, felt his spectre rising up, who was a very powerful bishop, Archbishop of Dublin in the 60s uh, and longer, and, and, and distinctive sort of the Irishman of his time, and I'm sure had great qualities. But I, actually, one of my cousins was the auxiliary bishop of Dublin under McQuaid. He was a man called Patrick Dunn, and he was a cousin of Thomas Dunn in the Stuart of Christendom, Willie Dunn's father in, in a long, long way. And he was a bishop. And just recently in the newspaper, um, we, you know, we've had this huge thing about um, child abuse in the Dublin diocese. And part of it is that the bishops colluded. And much to my horror, and in another way, of course, intense interest, I see this man's name come up as being one of these bishops. And the, the report hasn't been published, so I don't know what they, they're implying. But there he was, in the mire of that time, with his name now many years after his death, and his family reputation being as this wonderful, lovely, gentle, easygoing, brilliant man, being named. And I was thinking, and, and that's really what Father Gaunt is, is a sort of feeling that you're a person of your own blood. That's why I couldn't be against him yeah. entirely. Because, you know, if you're Hess's son, you must visit Hess. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that, that's, that's, the way, uh, that's the way I see him, Father Gaunt. And I know people find him unforgivable. Some people have even, you know, threatened, uh, threatened his life in letters. <laughs> so, poor Father Gaunt, sorry to his spirit, I should be saying. But Roseanne herself is a woman of great grace. I mean, appalling, appalling things happen to this woman that yeah. you'd imagine could annihilate a person. But she's a woman who finds happiness where she can. And is that, was that a kind of restitution for her? Well, I didn't uh, feel I did anything. I felt she was restituting me in some way. Um, I've written about some very complicated people in my own family and fictionalized them, or whatever you call that, madness. And uh, um, she seemed to me wholly benign. Uh, even her syntax is kind of fiercely benign. And um, it was enormous excitement uh, to write to write her, if I was doing that. Because there's also the hocus-pocus, tuppenny-hapenny possibility that, you know, that people are in you somewhere and they're waiting their chance and they just want to write their life at a certain point. In the earlier book, Ennius McNulty, 10 years before this, which, who was also in this book, that was about a great uncle who was given a sentence of death in Sligo. And my grandfather, uh, his brother, thought that he'd been murdered in the 60s in the Isle of Dogs. He was fairly convinced he had been and had sort of sorted that through the war office because they'd both been in the Second World War. But uh, when I was finishing that book 10, 14 years ago, whatever it was, a little bequest came from somebody in London dying in an old person's home. And the bequest was to my great-aunt Mary, who was the only person he would have known of because she was a very famous singer in her day, Mary O'Hara. And he had sent his few shillings to her. So as I was finishing the book, imagining he'd been killed in the 60s and having made up a book for him, right. he was sort of sending a little indication that he was still, you know. 
or had just been until recently, and sort of saying, don't think you wrote that book because actually I was doing it for you then. So I feel that about Roseanne as well, right. that she just arrived like, like um, a rara avis, you know, in my workroom in Wicklow and decided to take it over for a few months. Well, she's a wonderful character. I think we'll have come to the floor. I'm sure there'll be questions. Please, if you put your hand up, we've got there some mics for you to seize and ask questions. There's a lady here. In case I forget to say at the end, thank you all so much for coming. <laughs> now that I see you. For, for a woman of uh, 90, she, 100, she's remarkably uh, fluent and everything. Mm -hmm. But, and we swallow her story nearly all of the book, but then you cast doubt on it with the um, how popular her father is and mm -hmm. everything. And what have you to say about the nature of memory? Well, I suppose what I have to say about it is it's sort of in the book, because as I was doing it, I was. It was like a conversation back. Um, and some of the things I was quite shocked about when I had to start thinking about it. And I think Dr. Green gets at it at the end. I mean, Dr. Green was very useful to me because he was a sort of a person I could be, you know, in her presence. Uh, go, go around in, Dr. in the Dr. Green machine, as it were, or like a, <laughs> like a Dalek, you know, and get into those places. Um, he says at the end that, you know, he's read everything and he's contributed his own confusions, you might say, but he says that it's clear that sometimes Father Gaunt is actually giving factual truth, historical truth. Um, and, and Roseanne isn't, he thinks, whether or not we agree with him. But he, he says, but at the end of the day, he prefers Roseanne's untruth because it radiates health. Uh, I think this is an important thing about human narrative. We invest in our narratives. If we have no editor at our shoulder, or no counter-historian to tell us otherwise, we may be investing in an entirely inaccurate account of our lives. It doesn't actually matter. It's, it's if those narratives still embody the people that we have loved, and the people who have loved us, and the people who have hated us, and what we have done with hatred, and all those other emotions, that we've had to wrestle with while we're alive on the earth, if all those things are still embodied. The, the factuality of it cannot remain, can, cannot remain static. For, for instance, just recently we were reading, probably some of these well in The Guardian, that memory, each time you bring up a memory, each time you retrieve it, it has, been, it has rearranged itself to some degree in the brain. It doesn't lie there quietly or easily. I mean, sometimes I have a feeling that texts of books do that in the computer, which is really worrying. Because <laughs> I could have sworn I fixed that bit, but no, it's got even worse now. Um, you know, that, that we are that sort of creature, and that, that that's not, I mean, when I was at school in Ireland, I mean, the Ireland I was at school in doesn't exist anymore, because we have all this fast history and fast disappearing Ireland's. You know, we were taught quite po-faced by our history teacher the first people in Ireland were the fear bogs, and then the two day down, or whatever. Well, the other way around, maybe came in, and and uh, you know, these were all mythical stories that that were presented to us as actual factual history, without a second thought, because they were just as useful as a founding story for the country. 
And our founding stories are just as youth useful to us if they are if they're fast approaching myth. And how often have you been told by somebody, take your, your brother, your sister, whatever, um, you know, I, we went to, see, to the Isle of Man and whatever it was in 1972, didn't we? And we went to the beach. No, 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 no. They'll say, they, no, that was 1967 and I can prove it to you and blah, blah, blah. You know, because not only, everyone's memories are changing in different ways. The memories are the same thing. And this is terribly important. And as I was writing the book, I was thinking, this is sort of important because, first of all, it can, it, it, it explains to me the immense confusion I live most of my life in. Although, as Brian Friel says, confusion is not an ignoble condition. And the, the, the fact the whole impulse of books, of course this is a recipe for self-indulgence, but the whole impulse of books to add up is, is in, in a way counter-human. And in fact, you know, if you're looking at King Lear, which is an Irish king, a pagan king uh, uh, on the east coast of Ireland, well, you know, it's all, of course, it's all about Christianity. It's all in sort of the clothes of the 1500s. And do you know what I mean? It's total nonsense in a sense, but it's absolutely, absolutely bursting with truth because it's about Lear and Cordelia. And it's about, you know, Regan being rotten. And, you know, it's about those things that we recognize. And it's the things that we recognize that they are eternally true. I mean, you could go up to St. Peter and you could say, well, Jesus, what the hell was that? You know, I haven't an idea what happened. I know something happened. You know, by the time you get there, you might be. <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's what, I, that's what I feel about it. I mean, just from, from writing her, because I preferred her as well. And even as I wrote some of the things, I knew that she was misremembering them. But what is that? You know, it isn't a crime. It's actually a grace, as far as I'm concerned. Is it lady here? I was just wondering, would you tell us why you decided to change the title? What? Ah, see the way that went off I there? Know. That's part <laughs> well, of the story. Did you ask about the title? Yes. Why I changed the title? Why, why did you change the yes. title? Well, um, Hammers and Feathers. For, for a few years, that was the title. Because usually you get a kind of first chapter or half a bit of a chapter or something, and then you have a title. And actually, you might also have the ending. And that's all you have. And the time you write the book is when you feel is when you, when you can no longer cope with the guilt you feel for not writing the book for your publisher. <laughs> then you start. So that's very useful too. Um, the, the previous book was called A Long, Long Way, as in, um, uh, it's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to... So that was a long, long way. I wanted to call that The Secret Scripture because this beautiful poem by Tom Kettle, to my daughter Betty, and he wrote it in the trenches. Kettle was a poet, he was also a nationalist, constitutional nationalist, when 1916 occurred in Dublin behind him, in the First World War. He said, they have, I am now going to be this traitor in a British uniform and they are going to be the heroes. So you know, it undercut him completely. But anyway, he did die in 1917. And before, a few days before he died, a few weeks, he wrote this sonnet, one of the great sonnets in the English language, because it was such a great poetry came out so soon out of the First World War, under this pressure. And the last few, it was so his daughter could read it years from then and see what sort of man he was, because he was only a little baby at the time. And he said, Know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for crown, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed and for the secret scripture of the poor. Now, I wanted to call a long, long way the secret scripture, but I thought it was sort of grandiose for that book. 
because it was saying something slightly wrong, and, I, and I'm glad I stayed. But it was a lovely title. And, and I thought, well, strangely enough, before I had written this book, or maybe even conceived of this book, it was already the right title for it. So that's narrative the wrong way around, isn't it? You're supposed to think of titles at the end. But it always already was there. I sort of wrote the book up to the title. So that's why it changed. Can you tell me how you go about writing about people that you know without um, either being sued or being permanently sent to Coventry? How, how do you tackle that? Um, well, it's a, it's a tremendous, you know, mysteriously is the answer. Uh, what would you have to do to be the sort of person who could hurt nobody? I don't know if that person has existed, but in our lives, you know, some of the greatest heart is said privately in rooms where no one ever sees it. And then there are public hearts, and then there are incontrovertible moments of, of unjust hurt. Um, my, my first feeling about a writer, and I don't know why, uh, writers are quite admired in some quarters and they're often elevated to some degree. I think this is an enormous mistake. You know, I don't think the writer essentially has to be that good-hearted, noble, social, responsive person. I mean, a writer is also a thief and a renegade and a betrayer. You know, his, his or her character is also poor. It's a low character. Otherwise, you wouldn't be interested in the lowness and the heights of being alive. Um, the people I fear most to hurt are the people who have no recourse to the law. When I, when I made a play called Boscardi's Boys, about two old chaps who lived beside me in Mayo, uh, sorry, on the Cork Kerry border, uh, our, my landlord in my little house was Herd Hatfield. You talk about narrative. He was the man who had played Dorian Gray in the 40s. And he was still alive in a house in, in the Cork Kerry border and still looking about the way he looked in 1942. <laughs> and an absolutely lovely man. But anyway, and next door were these two lovely chaps, a brother, two brothers. And I was terribly worried about them, you know, but because there was one scene in the play where one of the brothers knocks a girl down. It was just wholly invented, of course, and I thought they would be upset by that. And we were touring in Kerry. We, we opened in Dublin, and finally we toured to Kerry, which was very worrying. And we were in Tralee, you know, which is very near where I was writing about, and the postmistress of the old district came. So then I knew I was doomed, because she was going to tell everybody. I mean, she'd be worse than my mother. And, it, you know, uh, tell Joan O'Hara, my mother, something. The whole of Ireland would know it the next day. God rest her. Anyway, um, but the news came back from those two, probably through Herd. And they said, oh, no, he said, oh, no, no, they, no, they weren't at all upset, Sebastian. They were just very proud and honored that there was a play about them on the Abbey stage. <laughs> so, so sometimes where you fear to hurt, you do not hurt. But do you ever fully know the hurt you may have done with uh, somebody who was noble enough to say nothing about it? Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I'm sorry. But um, Sebastian will be signing copies of this book in the signing tent just next to us. So please come and continue. Ask him questions then. And um, 
get your copy of this really superb book signed. Please join with me in giving an enormous vote of thanks to Sebastian Barrett.